You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 63, Definitive Peace. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, in this episode, we'll continue our discussion of diplomacy, Last time, we took a close look at two of France's four great power rivals. First, the Russians, who had been pulled into conflict with France largely over their objective to control the eastern Mediterranean, which was threatened by Napoleon's expedition to Egypt and conquest of Malta. However, the diplomatic scene of this era was always fluid, and Emperor Paul was capable of changing his mind in an instant. Before long, Russia pulled out of the coalition. Paul was on the verge of beginning hostilities with Britain, possibly even entering into an alliance with France, until his assassination changed the course of Russian foreign policy once again. Next, we looked at Austria. Due to the somewhat unique political framework and geographical position of the Habsburg monarchy, Austria was probably the most vulnerable of all the great powers. Austrian diplomats agonized over the proper diplomatic posture in the face of overwhelming French power. The Austrian emperor finally came down on the side of the pro-war faction. The ceasefire with France expired, and the Habsburg armies went on the offensive. We left off last episode with the Battle of Hohenlinden, in which that Austrian offensive was stopped and turned back in spectacular fashion. The Habsburgs were forced back to the negotiating table, and this time, those internal divisions within the Austrian court had been silenced by defeat. The Habsburgs were finally ready to make peace. I'd like to start this episode right where we left off, and take a look at the treaty which finally, officially ended the war between Austria and France. Well, for a few years. As you might recall, Napoleon had initially wanted a relatively lenient peace, essentially the return to the status quo established by the Treaty of Campo Formio at the end of the last war. From Napoleon's perspective, Austria had abused his good faith. Under the conventions of 18th century diplomacy, France would have been well within her rights to be more punitive in this new treaty. However, Bonaparte's stance towards the Austrians didn't change much after the Battle of Hohenlinden. 
he was pretty happy with the old Treaty of Campo Formio. After all, he'd negotiated it himself. And so, the new treaty wouldn't do much beyond strengthening and confirming the previous treaty. Napoleon picked his brother, Joseph, to be France's lead negotiator. Although that title is a bit misleading. In fact, Joseph was doing little more than following lengthy instructions from Napoleon. To give you an idea of just how detailed these orders were, here's a sample from January 20th. Quote, The armistice in Italy is not yet concluded. You ought to complain incessantly about this. You ought never to speak of Naples or the Pope. Whenever they are mentioned, you should say, Were you delegated any powers by those princes? No? Then France will negotiate with them directly. Whenever the king of Sardinia is spoken of, you should say only that, if we removed him for having fought for the emperor, the emperor ought to have restored him, that we shall come to an understanding with him, and so arrange matters in Italy as to prevent him from alarming his neighbors. End quote. In some of Napoleon's instructions, he even choreographed Joseph's body language. So as you can see, the Habsburgs may technically have been negotiating with Joseph, but they were mostly getting canned responses, fed to him by his younger brother. The talks took place in Mortfontaine, a village about 38 kilometers, or 24 miles, northeast of Paris, where Joseph owned a lavish country estate, which was well known as a social hub for the new post-revolutionary French ruling elite. In between negotiating sessions, Joseph entertained his guests with plays, salons, and hunting trips. Apparently, the Austrian negotiator, Count Cobenzel, was having such a good time, Joseph had trouble getting him to leave once the talks concluded. The agreement was finally signed in the town of Luneville, in eastern France, on February 9, 1801. It begins, quote, his Majesty, the Emperor and King of Hungary and Bohemia, and the First Consul of the French Republic, in the name of the French people, equally determined to put an end to the miseries of war, have resolved to proceed to the conclusion of a definitive treaty of peace and amity. End quote. The treaty had 19 articles, but it would be a waste of time to go through them all. The old peace, the Treaty of Campo Formio, would be the basis for the new peace. In fact, Article 17 of the Treaty of Luneville simply reads, quote, The 12th, 13th, 15th, 16th, 17th, and 27th Articles of the Treaty of Campo Formio are particularly renewed, and are to be executed according to their form and effect, as if they were repeated here verbatim. End quote. That's the entire article. French hegemony over northwestern Italy was confirmed once again, as was Austrian control over northeastern Italy, those former Venetian lands which Napoleon had handed over in the last treaty. In addition, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany would be handed over to the Republicans, extending French influence south into central Italy. The Treaty of Luneville also confirmed French conquests in Germany west of the Rhine, which would become the new border between the Republic and the Holy Roman Empire. On paper, there is really not much new to report here. All the really important provisions of the agreement were basically confirming or refining the terms of the Treaty of Campo Formio, plus a whole host of minor points. 
For instance, the Austrians agreed to the dismantlement of certain fortifications within Germany, and French merchants were guaranteed free navigation of the Rhine. This may seem like a bit of an anticlimax after such a bloody, hard-fought war. But remember, the Treaty of Campo Formio was considered massively punitive to Austria, and had represented a significant shift in European geopolitics. The Habsburgs had considered it so intolerable, they had been willing to return to war only two years later. Forcing them to confirm and actually expand upon this intolerable status quo was actually a significant victory for France. Count Cobenzel, the main Austrian negotiator, described the Treaty of Luneville as, quote, This wretched treaty I have sadly been obliged to sign. It is dreadful both in form and in substance. End quote. For the Austrians, the real pain would come in implementing the treaty. With the French annexing a whole swath of the Rhineland, dozens of princes of the Holy Roman Empire would be displaced. Each one would have to be compensated with new territory elsewhere. This process was bound to be a diplomatic nightmare for Austria. France had taken a huge slice of the Holy Roman Empire. No matter how the emperor chose to reallocate what remained, it would be the same number of princes with a diminished amount of territory. Someone would wind up losing land and power. The emperor's legitimacy was built around the idea that he was the protector and benefactor of the small states of the empire. The Treaty of Luneville represented the biggest failure of that mission in centuries perhaps in the entire history of the empire. And now, dozens of German princes were going to pay for that failure. There was simply no way to do this without stepping on a lot of toes and bruising a lot of egos. Worse, the French demanded to be included in this process, so they would be influencing things to try to maximize the damage to Austria's position and further extend their own influence in Germany. This was nothing short of an existential crisis for the Holy Roman Empire, an institution which had just marked its 1,000th year of existence. It was still too early to begin writing the empire's obituary, but there was now no question that it would only survive in a drastically reduced and radically different form, if at all. But these questions were set to be decided in the future, at a congress of all the states of the Holy Roman Empire. For now, the French took possession of their prizes, and the Austrians braced for the ordeal to come. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. With all this talk of the Habsburgs and Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, we've sort of been missing a piece, ignoring Austria's most bitter rival and the second great power within the empire, Prussia. 
I think it's time we move northeast and look at the newest member of the Great Power Club, the Kingdom of Frederick the Great. I think you can understand a lot about Prussian policy during this era simply by looking at some basic population numbers. At the outbreak of the French Revolution, Prussia probably contained around 9 million people. By comparison, the Habsburg crown had well over 20 million subjects, the Russian Empire 30 million, and France nearly 50 million. So the Prussians were massively outnumbered. In terms of population, they were much closer to secondary contenders, like Spain, Naples, or Portugal, than they were to their fellow great powers. And it's not like the Prussians controlled some fabulously rich tax base or great trading empire either. Today, we think of Germany as a very wealthy country, but that wasn't really the case until much later, particularly eastern Germany, the Prussian heartland. Despite these limitations, when he took the throne in 1740, Frederick the Great announced, quote, I intend to either assert my great power status or see everything go to ruins, so the very name of Prussia will be buried with me. End quote. And he was true to his word. His wars took Prussia right to the edge of the cliff. But by the time Frederick died, no one could deny his kingdom was a major player on the world stage. So how had this small, relatively poor state managed to claw its way into the ranks of the great powers? Frederick alone was not responsible. The roots of his success can be traced all the way back to the 1600s. Successive generations of Prussian leaders had always managed to do more with less. The bureaucracy was perpetually being refined to squeeze every bit of tax revenue and manpower the state could produce. Massive resources were sunk into the army. Prussia needed to put a much bigger proportion of her population into uniform if they were to be competitive with the larger great powers. And those troops would need to punch harder than any on the continent. Hence the relentless drill and discipline that made Frederick the Great's armies infamous all over the world. The Prussians became geniuses at finding efficiencies and pioneering new sources of money and manpower. But that's only part of the story. They also relied on cagey, opportunistic diplomacy and a lot of luck. Frederick the Great's wars in the mid-18th century pushed the vaunted Prussian army near the breaking point. The country came right up to the brink of disaster several times during his tenure. But in the end, he realized that old Prussian ambition. Frederick died in 1786, having ruled for nearly half a century. It will always be tantalizing to imagine how he might have reacted to the events in France, which began only three years later. Frederick left an indelible stamp on Prussia, but as is so often the case in situations like these, he left the state to men who did not share his vision and couldn't have filled his shoes even if they'd wanted to. His nephew, who became King Frederick William II, and his great-nephew, who became Frederick William III upon his father's death in 1797. We haven't discussed Prussia much so far on the show, simply because it has had little direct involvement in our story. But, as you might recall, the Prussians were one of the main participants in the early phases of the War of the First Coalition. 
Way back in episode 14, we discussed the famous Battle of Valmy. Valmy was the first significant Republican victory against the coalition. The opposing force was mostly Prussian, and commanded by a Prussian general, the Duke of Brunswick. However, Prussia pulled out of the war in 1795. The peace treaty with France was signed in April that year, months before the infamous whiff of grape shot on 13 Vendemiaire, when Napoleon's military career really began to take off. So, although Prussia was a major player, we haven't had much reason to talk about it. During the 1780s, before the Revolution, if you'd told a well-informed European that there would be a major war between the great powers in the next decade, that person probably would have assumed you were talking about a conflict between Prussia and Austria. The bitter, often bloody struggle between the two countries during the mid-18th century was still simmering. The Austrians wanted revenge, and the Prussians wanted to press their advantage. They remained at each other's throats almost right up until the moment they signed their military alliance at the beginning of the War of the First Coalition. Believe it or not, in the early stages of the revolution, the Prussian government was actually cautiously supportive of the new regime. Remember, many revolutionaries were fanatically anti-Austrian. They saw the Habsburg monarchy as France's geopolitical archenemy and a bastion of superstition and feudal backwardness. Austria needed to be destroyed, both for strategic reasons and in the name of progress. This view was probably helped along by the fact that Queen Marie Antoinette, the most hated member of the royal family, was a Habsburg. Austria was Prussia's greatest enemy, and so it was quite natural for Berlin to court the revolutionaries, despite their ideological differences. In fact, this was actually not the first radical liberal movement to receive Prussian encouragement. They had supported similar groups in Austrian territory earlier in the 1780s, for similar reasons. None of this is massively important to our story, but I do think it's a good illustration of how the national interest can take precedence over ideology. I also find it funny to imagine that there was a time when Prussia's Hohenzollern monarchy attempted to portray itself as the defender of liberalism before spending nearly the entire rest of its history as one of the most stalwart defenders of the old order in all of Europe. But as the situation in France grew more radical and less stable, the Prussian attitude towards the revolutionaries changed dramatically. Berlin tilted away from the new French Republic, and towards the power which was already coming to be recognized as the greatest enemy of the revolution, Austria. On August 27, 1791, the Hohenzollerns of Prussia and the Habsburgs of Austria released the Declaration of Pilnitz, a joint statement calling for the safety and liberty of the former French king, Louis XVI, and the restoration of his political power. Barely over a year earlier, it would have been unthinkable to imagine Prussia and Austria working together, especially against the French who had historically been Prussia's ally against the Habsburgs. The revolution made a lot of strange bedfellows on both sides. The Prussians and the Habsburgs agreed that once France was defeated, they would divide the province of Alsace between them, a wealthy, strategically important region of eastern France, 
which had once been part of the Holy Roman Empire, and whose population mostly spoke a dialect of German. This would not be the last time Alsace would be a point of contention between the French and the Germans. This was an alliance of convenience, but it worked. Once the war began, the Prussians shared a great deal of the burden with their former rivals, at least at first. At the beginning of the war, almost everyone expected a rapid French defeat. The country was nearly bankrupt, the government in chaos, being run by amateurs, and the army was disintegrating. But as we all know, the new republic also had hidden strengths. It soon became clear the struggle would be much longer and costlier than anyone had imagined, and the Prussians began to have second thoughts about embarking on such a massive undertaking alongside their greatest enemy. And so, Berlin entered talks with the revolutionaries. The French were quite eager to reach an accommodation with Prussia. This was late 1794. The existential threat to the Republic was over, but the momentum had only just begun to change. France's situation was still quite desperate, and getting one of her enemies out of the war would be a huge leg up. But the Republicans wanted more than just peace. Most of Prussia's territory was in what is today eastern Germany and western Poland. But it was not a contiguous state. It also controlled isolated enclaves of territory throughout modern Germany, including some pockets of the Rhineland. Revolutionary France wanted to annex these territories, as part of the drive to secure France's so-called natural borders, which included basically everything between the Rhine River and the Pyrenees Mountains. Perhaps surprisingly, the Prussians were actually open to this. They had little use for a small speck of territory on the far side of the Holy Roman Empire. It was difficult to administer, and even harder to defend. Given the choice, Berlin would have gladly swapped it for a roughly equivalent slice of territory closer to home, ideally actually bordering Prussian territory. And this is exactly what the French offered. In return for peace and the Prussian territory in the Rhineland, the Republicans agreed to give Prussia a free hand to expand her influence and acquire new territory in northern Germany. The principle of compensation at work once again. It may seem like the Prussians got the worst end of that deal. They effectively traded a bird in the hand for a bird in the bush. But, just like the French, it was in Prussia's national interest to end the war as soon as possible. There were things brewing in the East which demanded Prussian attention. A Polish rebellion had broken out, setting into motion the events which would soon lead to the Third Partition of Poland, of which Prussia would be one of the main beneficiaries. King Frederick William needed troops to fight the rebels and to marshal all the diplomatic and political resources of the state to ease these annexations. His domain was about to grow larger by more than a million subjects, increasing its size by over 10%. This dubious adventure in the West against France was a secondary concern compared to the massive opportunities which had just opened up in the East. France's promise to support Prussian ambitions in northern Germany was just icing on the cake. Ironically, the partitions of Poland under the ineffectual, unambitious King Frederick William II 
had actually expanded Prussian territory far more than all of Frederick the Great's conquests combined. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. In case you haven't been keeping track, the Prussians switched sides twice in the space of about four years. And this type of behavior had plenty of precedence. As I said, Prussian diplomacy was opportunistic. Sounds innocuous enough, but in practice, opportunistic diplomacy means double-crossing people and going back on your word. By the end of his reign, Frederick William II had a reputation for duplicity. People had gotten wise to his habit of changing sides whenever it suited him, and had become wary of entering into diplomatic agreements of any consequence with the Prussians. By the mid-1790s, Prussia was almost as diplomatically isolated as France. Frederick William III did not approve of his father's regime, and wanted to do things differently, but he was not a strong personality, to put it mildly. This opportunistic streak in Prussian foreign policy had deep roots, and the new king did not have the wherewithal to change things. Frederick William III took the throne in late 1797, almost exactly two years before Napoleon's rise to power. He was crowned at age 27, just a year younger than Bonaparte. He was a timid, incompetent man, the type of person who only hereditary monarchy would ever elevate to such a high position. He tried to copy the work habits of his brilliant, micromanaging great-uncle, Frederick, but he didn't have the talent or the attention span to make it work. Frederick William III was either pious and morally upright, or a stiff, self-righteous Bible-thumper, depending on who you ask. His personality could not have been further from Napoleon's. But when Bonaparte looked at Frederick William III, he saw a potential ally. Well, perhaps it's more accurate to say that when he looked on a map, he saw Prussia as a potential ally. The two countries had a common enemy in the Austrians, and a common cause, the transformation of the Holy Roman Empire, in a way which would loosen Austria's grip over Germany. Napoleon made overtures to Berlin, but got a cold reception. Frederick William was not ambitious or hungry for action like his famous great-uncle. He was an inward-looking monarch. His great passion project was reforming the various Protestant denominations within Prussia, not territorial aggrandizement or great power politics. The young Prussian king was quite content to sit back and tinker with the fine clockwork mechanisms of his state, even if all of Europe burned around him. 
This was not going to work for Napoleon. France needed allies. As we've seen, Bonaparte was already working on the Russians. But only a fool puts all his eggs in one basket. Through sheer persistence, he was able to cajole Berlin into joining Emperor Paul's League of Armed Neutrality, which Napoleon hoped would soon begin hostilities against Britain, thus bringing Russia, Scandinavia, and Prussia into the war on France's side. This would have been a huge diplomatic coup, and it nearly came to pass. But, as we all know, Emperor Paul was assassinated, and the League soon fell apart. Next, Bonaparte tried to entice the Prussians into invading the Electorate of Hanover, a relatively large, wealthy state in northwestern Germany, in what is today the state of Lower Saxony. In the early 18th century, the ruling house of Hanover had inherited the throne of England. In the 1790s, King George III of Great Britain was also the Elector of Hanover, so this was a de facto outpost of British territory in western Germany much in the same way the Austrian emperor controlled Hungary and Bohemia. However, when George III had declared war on France, he had done so only in his capacity as King of Great Britain and Ireland. In his capacity as Elector of Hanover, he had declared himself neutral. The same man was simultaneously at war and at peace with France. Anyone could see this was nothing but an absurd legal fiction. But it was in everyone's interest to respect it, and so Hanover remained neutral while Britain battled the revolutionaries. That is, until Napoleon came to power. He loathed this type of hypocrisy, even if it was technically within the letter of the law. Bonaparte wanted to strike at Britain any way he could, and Hanover was a tempting target, sitting untouched already within his reach. Napoleon wanted to occupy Hanover, but he would not simply march in at the head of a French army. His plans were much more subtle. Instead, Bonaparte contacted the Prussians and strongly encouraged them to occupy the territory, promising French diplomatic support. Using the Prussians to strike at Hanover would serve multiple purposes. Striking a blow against Britain, but also driving a wedge between London and Berlin and binding France and Prussia closer together. The British might even respond by declaring war on Prussia, effectively pulling them into the war on France's side. The Prussians were eager to expand their holdings in Germany, and Hanover was a very desirable prize. Hanover was just over Prussia's western border, and so would be very easy to integrate into the kingdom. It contained valuable commercial ports, Bremerhaven at the mouth of the river Weser, and Hamburg at the mouth of the Elbe. It contained nearly a million people, generally prosperous and German-speaking, ideal new subjects for the Prussian state, who were desperately needed. So there were good reasons to think the Prussians might accept this offer. But it was rebuffed. An ambitious risk-taker like Frederick the Great probably would have jumped at the chance. He might have even suggested this himself. But Frederick William was not his great-uncle, and his ministers had grown very skeptical of the revolutionary government. But Napoleon would not take no for an answer, countering that if Prussia did not seize Hanover, he would. French troops would occupy the province. It was strongly implied this area might be converted into another pro-French puppet regime, 
or even annexed into the Republic. If this came to pass, Hanover would likely remain out of Prussia's reach for the foreseeable future. And so, in the spring of 1801, Frederick William reluctantly ordered his troops to invade Hanover. We've seen Napoleon strong-arm his enemies before, but now he'd nearly succeeded in bullying Prussia into friendship. Britain stopped short of declaring war on Prussia, but Hanover was now a major point of contention between London and Berlin. Napoleon had succeeded in driving the two powers apart and tilting Prussia towards France, against their own will. All told, it was a pretty slick maneuver for a man with no formal diplomatic training and limited experience. If history had unfolded differently, you can easily imagine how this might have been a turning point in European diplomacy. However, literally as the Prussian troops were occupying Hanover, Britain's pro-war Prime Minister, William Pitt, was already in the process of being ousted, paving the way for peace negotiations between Britain and France. The conflict Napoleon was hoping to drag Prussia into would likely soon be over. In the end, Prussia only occupied Hanover for seven months. Once the peace talks gained steam, Napoleon released Frederick William from his promise, and Prussian troops quietly evacuated the territory. The whole affair had ultimately amounted to nothing, other than an illustration of how easily King Frederick William could be bullied and manipulated. And so, Prussia would continue to be a bit of an odd man out in the European diplomatic scene. The vaunted Prussian army would remain on the sidelines. Many in Europe still considered it the best military in Europe. But it would be five more years before they would finally test their mettle against the new French army forged by the revolution. So, now we're up to date with Prussia, Austria, and Russia the only one of France's great power rivals we haven't covered in the last two episodes, is Britain. But we discussed British politics and diplomacy in detail in episode 58, when we covered the Battle of Copenhagen and the League of Armed Neutrality. So I don't think we need much more than a brief recap. In short, Britain was exhausted after nearly a decade of war. However, that's not to say they were militarily defeated. The British had experienced some setbacks, but nothing even approaching the scale that their coalition allies on the continent had suffered. In several attempts, the French had proven unable to establish a durable foothold in the British Isles. Britain occupied several French colonies, and the Royal Navy was a serious nuisance on the high seas. So, all told, the British position looked relatively secure. But not all was as it seemed. Serious discontent was brewing on the home front. In this era, like all eras, war almost always brought economic deprivation. Taxes rose. Men were pulled out of the labor force to serve in uniform. Merchant ships and their cargoes were lost to enemy navies and privateers. And valuable resources were diverted away from productive enterprises towards the war effort. These hardships were felt particularly strongly in Britain, where so much of the economy was built on international trade and the production of goods for export. Every French conquest on the continent made things worse. Each time a new country or province came under French domination, that meant another market lost to British merchants. By the late 1790s, 
these economic problems were already having an impact on the lives of average Britons. These hard times were further compounded by a series of bad harvests, which led to price increases of basic staple foods and even shortages. Unrest grew. Watching these developments, with the example of France fresh in their mind, the British ruling class must have worried that their country might be in the early stage of some new kind of defeat. What if Britain could somehow be strangled into submission without a single French soldier setting foot on English soil? Maybe Napoleon would just keep finding new ways to turn the screws until the pressure became unbearable and the government was brought to its knees. It was a worrying prospect. No one wants to be a pioneer in the field of defeat. So, for their own reasons, the British were almost as eager as Napoleon to reach an accommodation and return to peace. But the negotiations that ensued would not be as easy for France as the recent talks with Austria. Unlike the Habsburgs, the British still held a lot of cards. Napoleon would be negotiating on more or less equal footing with his counterparts rather than dictating terms, as he generally preferred. This would be a difficult process. To give you one example, before official talks could begin, there had to be a kind of unofficial pre-negotiation to set the parameters of discussion. This is pretty typical of high-level diplomacy, even today. But in this particular case, the pre-negotiation process alone took over six months just to get the sides close enough together that they could even begin officially talking. Next time, we'll dive into the momentous and surprisingly amicable negotiations that eventually produced the Treaty of Amiens and peace in Europe for the first time in a decade. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.